This is the Immigration Conversation presented by Fragman, a series of talks and discussions by leading immigration lawyers and professionals from around the world. We'll bring you the most up-to-date business immigration news, issues of concern, and strategies in the world of global immigration and mobility. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Immigration Conversation podcast hosted by Fragman. I'm Jordi Bayer, and I'm a senior associate with Fragman's Los Angeles office. I'm joined by my colleague, Mike Israeliv, a senior associate in the New York office of Fragman. Together, Mike and I have many years of experience representing clients pursuing green cards via the EB-5 Immigrant Investor Program. And on today's episode, we'll discuss some of the most common questions investors face and issues that arise during the EB-5 green card process. Hey, Mike. Hey, Jordi. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. I'm excited to talk about this topic. It's it's uh you know it's really really relevant. Definitely. So, so Jordy, you know, let me tee up the conversation as we as we uh, get into it, and and really, I'm an EB five investor. I come into your office and I say, Jordy, what is EB five? What do you tell me? Well, how much money do you got? Um, no, but seriously, <laughs> that's a re- that's a relevant question, of course. It is relevant. It is relevant. But uh, I probably wouldn't start the conversation like that. But it is re- it is a relevant question, and it's something that we'll actually touch on a little bit more um, as we get deeper into this podcast. But um, just like on the face of things, the EB five um, green card process it's essentially an investment based green card option. So um, it is one of the employment based. Uh, immigrant visa classifications, but unlike some of the other um, employment-based visa classifications, for instance, um, EB-2 or EB-3, EB-5 green card is for an immigrant investor. So what that basically means is that you don't need to have an employer sponsor your case. Um, You can make an investment into um, a U.S. business and there's a job creation requirement. And, um, you know, if all goes well and throughout the process that we'll talk about throughout this podcast, um, you know, at the end of the day, you'll get a green card based on your um, EB-5 investment. So that's great. So this is something I could do on my own as as the client. I, I, or I could potentially give money to one of my kids if, if that's of interest. You know, I'm not obligated to work for anybody. I'm not obligated. I'm not tied to the job, right? So that's Correct. the beauty of the EB-5 program. I think There's- that's that's a really kind of important point. Um, and There's so, a lot of freedom involved with the EB-5 green card process that isn't um, part of some of the other employment-based green card options. So, you know, if you have the funds available, and if you if you do have the money available to invest, it's definitely a, a great option. And there's other reasons why EB-5 is a great option as well, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, you know, but essentially when most, I would say 90% of EB-5 investors in this space, um, when they decide that they want to proceed with EB-5, um, they are going to make their capital investment into a regional center project. Um, and with a regional center is um, an entity that has been approved by um, U.S. Uh, Citizenship and Immigration Services, the U.S. government, um, to basically be allowed to accept EB-5 investment funds so that the investors can eventually qualify for this EB-5 green card. Um, That's the long and the short of it. Um, Effectively, what that means, though, is that um, the EB-5 investor can, who invests into a regional center can benefit from 
essentially having um, the regional center and the new commercial enterprise or the project that they're investing into take care of most of the heavy lift in terms of um, demonstrating that the project meets these specific EB-5 um, criteria. Um, and on the investor side of things, their heavy lift is essentially showing that um, the source of their EB-5 investment funds um, are clean and that they came from a lawful source. So um, this is the main, the primary reason why I find that most of the investors that I work with choose um, the, the regional center route. Would you say that's the case for most of your uh, investor clients as well, Mike? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so let's clarify one point from the onset. The EB-5 program actually allows you to either make an individual investment or an investment with a regional center, like Jordy was detailing, which usually has several ready projects that where they've already done the financial analysis, economic analysis. And really the cornerstone is that you know, at the heart of EB-5 is that you have to show that your investment is generating at least 10 jobs for two years, right? That's the basic idea. And the reason that most investors, and you know, we don't have an exact statistic, but it's 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 north of ninety percent, if I were to estimate, uh, they go with regional center investments. And the reason that most investors do this is because there is a, a big ask from a compliance perspective. You know, there is a lot of financial analysis. There's a lot of economic analysis. It has to be done in a specific way. So it really does become uh, functionally kind of a, a better strategy to invest with the regional center. And and look, investors come to us all the time, right, Jordy? This happens to you. They say hey, which regional center should I go with? And how do you respond? Yeah, it's a tricky question because, you know, we're immigration attorneys. We are not securities and investment advisors. We don't have broker-dealer licenses. Um, so, you know, when a client comes to me and asks me, where should I invest my money so that I can get an EB-5 green card, I can't really tell them where to invest their money. You know, we can't say that um, this is this particular project is a good investment. Um, we can really only discuss um, whether we've vetted a project, um, you know, from an immigration standpoint. So in, in other words, like um, we can talk to the client on things like whether or not the project um, has met that job creation requirement, um, whether the project is located in a targeted employment area, um, you know, but from beyond beyond several immigration standpoint type of points, we cannot advise on um, whether or not a particular regional center um, project is a good investment. Um, basically, we tell the clients that they need to do this research on their own um, independently. You know, potentially they can work with their own uh, third-party wealth management advisor who specializes in EB-5. Um, you know, that's that's something that exists in the, in the EB-5 space, um, certainly. Um, and then the client can let us know when they've picked their regional center and the project that they'd like to work with. And then, um, you know, while the client is taking care of that aspect separately, um, we can also talk to them about the source of their funds and where they're planning on deriving these EB-5 investment funds from um, so that by the time they've picked their project, we have their case pretty much cleaned up and lined up and ready to be finalized, um, you know, from the investors, from the investor side of things. Yeah, and, and I think it's really important to understand there's a lot of regional centers, right? There are a lot, a lot. of investments. There, there are investments from, uh, you know, steel mills to racetracks to real estate developments. There's really a variety of, of investments that could potentially qualify somebody here. And so as an investor, it's really important as a matter of due diligence that you do the homework. 
we'll be here. We'll, we'll review all of the documentation, like Jordy said, from an immigration perspective. We'll tell you whether or not the project generates more jobs than it needs to, or whether or not there's a cushion if some of the economic plans change or, or really, you know, the economy tanks, which is always a possibility, right? At the end of the day, the EB-5 investment, it's an at-risk investment, right? There's risk. There's no guaranteed return. And, and frankly, you know, it's an investment that is not going to generate generally that much money will charge an administrative fee, um, but you want to stay and you want to identify a regional center that has a track record of paying back investors. And, you know, we can we can certainly kind of point you in the right direction, but ultimately that decision will be yours. Um, and look, the second piece of what Jordy is saying is really critical, right, Jordy? Every, everybody always comes to us and they say, my funds are clean, mm-hmm. right? And that's a critical piece because the the regulations and the legislation require us to be able to demonstrate that the source of the money is derived from a lawful source and that the, the, the person who's investing the money or if it's somebody who's you know gifted them that money uh, has complied with all the local tax regulations, et cetera. Right. And I'm not exaggerating when we've had when I say that we've had billionaires who have come to our office who have said, My money is clean. Like, no problem. Don't worry about it. This will be done tomorrow. And at the end of the day, when we start actually looking into it, it becomes much more challenging because the activity that we're doing when we're sourcing money is we're sourcing every dollar, rupee, euro, whatever else from the source to the point where it goes into the escrow with the regional center, right? And most people... Jordy, correct me if I'm wrong here. Most people do not keep their their funds like in a pillowcase, you know, um, uh, under their mattress, right? Um, Our jobs would be a lot easier if that were the case. I'll tell you that much, Mike. All right, um, exactly. It's so, <laughs> yeah, it's very rare to have the entire investment amount come from one place. I would say, you know, most frequently, um, investors that we work with. I mean, and it makes sense because, you know. A lot of people don't just have the minimum investment amount just sitting, like you said, in a pillowcase or under their mattress, just wait, waiting to be invested. Um, you know, funds are tied up in multiple different places. And each place that um, a piece of the investment funds come from, we need to source, um, you know, we need to provide documentation to the government on both the source of those funds as well as the path of those funds. So like, let's say that um, an investor comes to you and they derived a piece of their investment funds from um, the sale of a property that they purchased 20 years ago. And then a piece of the funds came from um, accumulated salary that they earned over the course of their last 20 years being an investment banker or an attorney or what, what, whatever their job was. Um, but that's 20 years of pay statements that we would need to track. You know, I'm, it's very rare that the person would have just kept all of those um, funds that they earned from accumulated salary just sitting in a checking account. You know, like most of the time, these funds are going to move to a savings account, investment fund accounts. Um, potentially, they've been used to purchase securities that have been sitting in a securities portfolio. I mean, the funds can literally be in any number of places, and we need to demonstrate that each dollar or rupee or rupee or what what have you any any currency that we're working with um that each of those dollars um came from a lawful source and we need to follow the path the maze usually of where these funds went from the time that they were earned until the time that they were invested even if the funds were earned you know 20 30 40 plus years ago Um, there's no limit on the the amount of time that you need to go back so, Jordy, how much money are we actually talking about? Well, 
let's put it this way. It's more than just a small, like five or even $50 investment. We're talking about, um, for the standard investment amount, it's a million fifty thousand um, dollars, and then for investments into a targeted employment area, it's eight hundred thousand um, dollars. And then, you know, best practice, we typically also um, need to provide the lawful source of funds for um, the administrative fee that's charged by the regional center. And usually, those admin fees are what, like forty to eighty thousand dollars on average? Yeah, that's what we typically see. That's the range. Right. And just for those that are listening, I mean, a targeted employment area is one where the the track, basically, the area, the geographic area has an unemployment rate that is significantly higher, 150% of the national average. Um, and so for most regional center projects that are coming online, they, they generally would prefer, if possible, to be in a targeted employment area because that's going to be an incentive for investors to invest because the amounts are going to be lower, right? The 800,000 uh, number. Now, look, we have started talking about some of the source of funds issues. And what Jordy was talking about earlier is really relevant, right? The older the money, the older the source of the money, right? The more leniency the Immigration Service, USCIS, will give you in terms of tracking and, and explaining where the original funds came from. And when we talk about really the source of funds, we are talking about for a piece of real estate that was purchased 40 years ago, what were the what was the funds? Are there tax returns? Are there any documentation? Does the purchase agreement specify, you know, how the original funds were uh, obtained? If we're talking about somebody who's a gift or right, somebody who's giving a gift, which is very common for people who want to, you know, give their kids a, a boost, right? Give them an opportunity to to remain in the United States using this program. We're also talking about, you know, showing tax compliance documents not just for the immediate investor, which is the you know the the child, but also the parent who's giving away the capital, right? So these are the types of questions that we're dealing with on a pretty regular basis with investors. And like I said, every investor always, always assures us about how clean their funds are. But in reality, very few people keep their, their money in a savings account without moving it. And so Journey, I mean, I've had EB-5 petitions that end up quite literally being 20 pounds of paper where we're sourcing and tabbing and explaining. And these are really, really kind of substantive undertakings. Wouldn't you agree? Definitely. Um, most investors would most likely agree that um, preparing the documentation and the explanations that are involved with the source of funds for the I-526E petition is the most burdensome undertaking and the most burdensome part of the EB-5 process for the investor. And are there any unusual or kind of interesting uh, EB-5 source of funds that you can recall working on? Definitely. I've worked on hundreds plus EB-5 cases over the course of my career, and I've definitely come across some very interesting and unusual sources of funds for EB-5 investment. Um, just two unique cases that stick out in my mind. One where the investor actually got their uh, the primary portion of their EB-5 investment funds by selling an antique car at auction. And then another investor whose grandfather um, was gifted a jade bracelet by a beggar in return for food and shelter. And then the grandfather passed that bracelet down to the investor who ultimately sold the bracelet at auction for the equivalent of 500,000 uh, US dollars at the time, which would have at that time been sufficient for um, EB-5 investment amount. So, you know, these are two unique examples um, which have 
fairly unexpected sources of funds as compared with the traditional source of funds narratives that we typically see where the investor gained their EB-5 investment funds from the sale or the mortgage of a piece of real property um, or accumulated salary earnings um, by getting um, a large bonus from their employer that um, they use for primary piece of the EB-5 investment funds. Um, those are the more common sources of funds, uh, fact patterns that we typically see. So there you go. Even a good deed can result in uh, in in your source of funds uh, for purposes of the underlying investment. the The bottom line is that we've definitely had to do some very detailed analysis. I think it it becomes challenging when you have, for example, securities that you're buying and selling, and you have to go back and find actually records of all of these, especially if you've been doing it over a pro, uh, uh, you know, prolonged period of time. Or some people have trusts, right? And then you have to be able to mm -hmm. show why the trust is able to release the funds to you. Others have bonuses. Those are those are great source of funds, right? Bonuses. But a lot of times investors, uh, you know, it'll be sometimes a family activity where, you know, one family member may give this piece and, you know, the parent may give this piece and there may be a piece of property that was inherited. And, you know, so there's a combination of things. Uh, sometimes inherited people, by like three siblings, for instance, three only siblings. one of the sibling wants to cash out for the EV5 investment. Right. So the, <laughs> the bottom line, I think, for investors that are interested in pursuing this as an option is that, look, we will have to go back and more, we, we want to be able to provide the most comprehensive and really conservative source of funds analysis that we can. Uh, and, and we want to make it really simple, right? At the end of the day, the adjudicator at the government, you know, may be uh, trained in EB-5 adjudication, but they're not necessarily an expert in, you know, real property in India or Taiwan or Vietnam or wherever the investor is coming from, right? And we, and we have to be mindful of that. There's also capital controls in some of these countries in terms of moving capital. And so we want to keep that on our radar too. And those are the types of things we would work with an investor to flag, to identify strategies, you know, in terms of moving the, the capital in a way that works for purposes of the EB-5. The bottom line Mike, is- Mike, let me ask you a question. Sorry, before you move on, because you brought something up to my attention that um, I'm curious to know how how your team typically deals with um, situations like this. Like, how would you handle a situation where um, the funds are coming from a country where the record keeping um, processes are pretty bad or non-existent? Like in Vietnam, let's say, or, um, you know, that's the first country that comes to mind. Um, so what, what would your strategy be to, to fill in the holes if records aren't available, especially for properties that were purchased so many years ago? Right. So Vietnam in particular, right? The the codification of really business laws didn't happen until about 20, 25 years ago. So if you had even a private enterprise, even if it was a small local enterprise prior to that, there probably wasn't a whole lot right. there, right? So where we've been successful in making those types of arguments is including affidavits from investors. If we really need to, you know, we can, we can try to dig up the local statutes, get those translated, explain the context. And at the end of the day, look, the, the critical piece is that the EB-5 adjudicator is probably going to have seen other cases from those countries, right? So our job, I think, as the lawyers is to be creative and strategic in how we go about making those arguments for purposes of the EB-5. As, and as long as there's uh, you know a, a, an, enough contextual evidence to show that this money didn't just like show up on the investor's doorstep, you know, oftentimes there is an argument to be made there. Um, 
you know, in terms of the EB-5, so Jordy, we've talked about the investor. They come knocking on the door. They've identified the regional center. They're satisfied that it, you know, that the that the investment, let's say it's in a targeted employment area is 800,000. They've sourced the money both for the investment and the administrative fees. And now what? What are the next steps in terms of moving along this process? Like, what do we do? I mean, there's the boring lawyer stuff that needs to happen. So, you know, um, the the lawyer will, or the case team that's working on the case will draft up um, a letter to the government that includes um, information about both the regional center and the project, as well as um, specific information about the investors' um, source and path of their funds. Um, we will work with the client to gather um, information from them so that we can complete an extensive form um, that's also submitted to the government with this I-526E petition, which is the in- immigrant investor petition that's submitted to the government um, that essentially shows uh, the government that the investor is making um, an investment that meets both the minimum capital investment requirements as well as the regional center and the project requirements. Um, and then potentially, um, because of some relatively new um, rules that have come into place with the RIA, um, if there is a visa number available to the investor, they may be eligible to concurrently file an adjustment of status application if they're currently uh, located in the U.S. in a valid non-immigrant status. So that's a pretty cool um, new um, change that we've had to the EB-5 laws that I think you're going to talk a little bit more about, right, Mike? Yeah, I will. I think it's definitely worthwhile, and we could we could kind of hit it here as well, which is that you know in the past when you filed your I five two six petition or I five two six E petition, which is the kind of underlying EB five petition, you had to wait and then finish the process either abroad or once it was approved, you could you know adjust your status in the U.S. And what the new legislation that came out earlier this year did was it allowed you to actually you know skip the wait. Um, so if you're already here in an underlying non-immigrant visa, you could potentially apply to adjust your status. And what's the benefit of that? Well, this is a self-sponsored petition, right? So if you want to have the ability to remain in the United States, you want to pursue your other objectives, you can do that. And as part of that process, and we can talk about this a little bit later, you can also ask for an interim you know, travel and, and work authorization card, which will be granted typically in two-year increments. So you know, there are a lot more benefits now to the EB-5 program with some of these new legislative changes. And Jordy, so we filed the I-526 petition, the 526E petition rather now, right? We get it and and we lodge it with the immigration service. And then what happens? Hopefully it gets approved. (laughs) (laughs) That's every every investor's uh, goal, right? That's our goal as well. Um, And then um, depending on, you know, where the investor is located, if they're... um, priority date from the EB-5 investment is current and there's a visa number available to them at that time, um, they would either proceed with an adjustment of status application or um, consular processing at a U.S. embassy abroad um, so that they can apply for their two-year conditional green card. So when you have an I-526E petition that's approved, um, you're initially only eligible for a two-year conditional green card. Um, And you get that two-year conditional green card, and then uh, within the 
three-month window before that two-year green card expires, you submit an I-829 petition, which is the petition to remove the conditions on the conditional green card and get the permanent, like, forever green card, essentially. The forever um, green card, the goal, the forever and green card. It's usually card. 10 years, but, uh, you know, for, for our purposes, let's call it the forever green card, as opposed to just the short-term one that you get with uh, the initial conditional green card. Right. So that's the, that's an important kind of uh, that's an important point for all of the people that are listening to the podcast today to be aware of that the original the initial uh, EB five petition, which is the I five two six E, it allows you to get a conditional green card, and that conditional green card is valid for two years, and then you have to remove the conditions, and the government will give you a receipt, and it'll automatically extend your then expired document, and you're allowed to work, and you're allowed to remain in the United States during this whole time period, but it does take a number of years, so it's not necessarily a fast process, but it is a process that it gives you independence, right? And we talked about why that is from the standpoint of the typical employment-based immigration you know, kind of sponsorship route in the U.S., and you know, I think that's a good tangent also into some of the changes that have come about as a result of the REI, RIA, I'm sorry, the Reform okay. and Integrity Act, uh, the EB-5 Reform and Integrity Act that was passed in March of this year, right? And the, the RIA was, uh, it was a it was a big boost. I mean, there was a significant gap in the legislation that expired last June until the new legislation kind of went into effect this May. And the RIA, IA <laughs> was uh, was was uh, you know something that was passed with with a, a fair amount of bipartisan support, um, and the new legislation is valid for five years, and it includes a lot of really good things. One of the things that it includes is actually kind of a grandfathering provision. So if you invest in the program, you know one of the concerns has always been, well, what happens if the legislation runs out? Well, this has investor protections; you can continue with your case. In addition. If there are some issues with the regional center or there are some issues with the I-29, et cetera, where you know, the project just doesn't work out, the new legislation also has some provisions where within 180 days of like any adverse action by the immigration service, you could potentially find a new project and, and kind of refile. Those things didn't previously exist, which is, you know, a, a really positive thing. And then, you know, a lot of people. It's Mike, can I just interject for a second? Of course. So it sounds to me like what you're saying is despite the fact that the investment amounts may have gone up pretty significantly, all things considered, um, that really the the RIA is incredibly protective of investors. Right. It's it seems like all the the changes that you're talking about are really benefits to investors, right? Apart yeah. from the fact that the investment amount is higher. Yeah, absolutely. There's been a lot of changes uh, as a result of the legislation that are meant to protect investors. Um, and, and there are even changes in terms of regional center compliance, right? Uh, regional centers are now required to, uh, you know, to to have really strict record keeping. Uh, they're going to get audited every five years. They're paying additional fees and investors do pay an additional fee for, per, for this purpose. But the goal is to really make it a more transparent system. It's to make it a system where the investor really knows what's going on. In addition, you know, some investors, they choose to work with like an immigration agent or, or some other individual that helps them navigate this process, especially when they're abroad. And this new uh, legislation requires those agents to register with you USCIS with the Immigration Service. It requires them to disclose all of their fees uh, to the investor in writing. Um, and it makes sure that anybody that has any type of kind of, you know, uh, history that is is 
you know, in, involves any type of fraud or criminality, et cetera, you know, they, they're not involved in this pro in this program either. So yes, it certainly does provide a lot of new protections for EB-5 investors. And I think the, the community was really pushing for those, right? Like the, and, and these things will play out in the coming years and hopefully really in a beneficial way to investors because the program, you know, it can take a number of years to complete. And it's something that the investors have to really be uh, aware of. Um, the other piece, Jordy, which I think we've talked about, which is really kind of cool, is that the program has some separate set-asides, right, which didn't pre-exist, right. right? And this has been like the talk of the town. Um, and these set-asides are like 20% of the of the visas for projects that are rural, 10% for uh, high employment areas, 2% for infrastructure, and then anything that's unused gets kind of carried over into the next year. We don't have a huge amount of clarity. The government still has to publish some regulations in terms of what some of these things mean. But at the very least, you know, this is a potential avenue for, you know, the investor who's coming from China where there is a backlog of visa availability or some of these other countries to kind of skip the line, right? If they invest in a project that is in one of these set-asides. So, you know, all in all, pretty good stuff, I would yeah, say. Yeah, definitely. And it, it um, for a lot of folks who are just starting out on their um, employment-based green card um, journey with their employers um, who are from backlogged countries, which, I mean, even as of the December visa bulletin, the, it's not just China and India that are backlogged um, for many of the employment-based preference categories. So, um, you know, for a lot of folks, the EB-5 green card route is certainly a way that at the very least they can apply for their adjustment of status. Uh, their green card application can get submitted a lot sooner than it other, otherwise would have been eligible under one of the, the other um, EB preference categories. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, ideally this would not be an issue, right? But realistically what we're dealing with is an immigration service that has a number of backlogged uh, cases. What is it? 9 million at present, uh, Jordy? It's a staggering number. Um, and you know, this is a route where somebody could self-sponsor. It's a route for somebody to have the ability to remain here if they use that concurrent uh, adjustment of status filing option. And, you know, there are some other things within the new statute, you know, the sustainment period, which we don't have to go into great detail is is now shorter, which means that, you know, you, you only have to really invest your money and show it for two years. And again, we'll see how exactly this plays out in the space. So there are some benefits and it's certainly worthwhile to consider, at least, at least as an option among the, you know, the the ones that uh, individuals seeking to stay here have. Um, so Jordy, look, if, if you were to summarize, what are, what are the key takeaways? Like that investor, you know, they came in, you gave them the whole spiel, you walked them through the source of funds, they identified a regional center, we filed uh, or we're considering filing an EB-5 petitions. And, and what are the kind of key takeaways that you would share with that investor? So EB-5 is a really great option um, for someone who's looking for freedom um, to get their adjustment of status application filed without being tied to a specific employer. Um, and it's also a great option for investors who are born in countries that are backlogged and that are historically backlogged for like 10, 15 years sometimes, um, where there's an enormous wait time um, before the um, foreign national would even be eligible to apply for um a green card in one of the other employment-based preference categories, EB-5, um, allows them to at the very least get their adjustment of status application filed a lot sooner than they otherwise would have been able to. So I, I would say those are the two main takeaways here. Um, if you have the money um, and 
you are looking to explore an option that is um, provides you with a little bit more independence from your from an employer, um, it's a great it's a great option to at the very least explore. Yeah, absolutely. And with all the changes, it's it's something that we're really looking forward to seeing develop and grow. And hopefully, the program sticks around for a long time. Um, and you know, we're here, and we can advise you, and we can help you if you have those questions. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's an option worth to consider. So, Jordi, I thank you very much. Um, it was really great speaking to you, and um, you know. I look Thanks, forward to Mike. our next conversation. We hope you found today's episode of the Immigration Conversation helpful. If you'd like more information on the EB-5 program, please reach out. And thank you so much for listening in. Thank you. Bye now. The Immigration Conversation podcast is presented by Fragment, the leading firm dedicated exclusively to immigration services worldwide. This episode is current as of the date of recording. With frequent changes in global immigration, be sure to keep up to date by visiting our website at www.fragaman.com and subscribing to the Immigration Conversation on your favorite podcast service to hear the latest episode. This podcast is for informational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal advice or give rise to an attorney-client relationship between any listener and our firm. If you have any questions, please contact the Global Immigration Professional with whom you work at Fragamin.